welcome to The Divorce Social with me, Samantha Baines, changing the conversation around divorce. This show is sponsored by Penguin in the Room. Penguin in the Room is an award-winning arts, marketing and social media management company. If you want to jazz up your socials and have someone Instagram and tweet for you, then here's your answer. Go to www.penguinintheroom.com. As always, hit subscribe to make sure you're updated about new episodes. And we love to hear from you on social media at DivorcePod and at Samantha Baines. You can also email us all the infos on our website, thedivorcesocial.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode, I spoke to podcaster and radio presenter Graham Smith. We met originally because I interviewed him on BBC Radio London. And I love his podcast about queerness and queer identity. So we talk about a big breakup that he had. There is a trigger warning on this episode for drug abuse and death as well, because after the breakup, the person he'd been involved with did pass away. So it's a really interesting, open chat about everything that went on in Graham's life at that time. Enjoy. I am joined by Graham Smith, podcaster and radio presenter. Welcome to The Divorce Social. Hello, welcome. Thanks for having me. I feel honoured because I've never actually been divorced. But I feel like if I was straight, I would have been divorced five times. (laughs) Well, you're very welcome to be part of The Divorce Social gang. So why, why do you think that you would have been divorced five times if you were straight? Because I have this, from about the age of 15 there's never been a period where i've not been in a relationship for more than like a month wow so i was one of those people that went from one relationship to the other a couple of them longer than others some of them a few months at a time but i always went straight in everything 100 percent. never kept a little bit of myself back so i know that the way those relationships went if i'd have been straight i would have been let's get married you know like one of them people that does it after about six weeks and then had to kind of rapidly undo it as I found out about all of the other person's shit that they had going on that I didn't know about. So yeah, I feel like almost in some ways being gay kind of saved me from just a string of failed marriages. Instead, I had just a string of failed relationships. But you can get married. What stopped you? 
That's true, you know. Well, not all the way through my life. So I'm 40, and what you were able to get into a civil partnership from 2005 when I would have been 23. And it was something I would have done, but it was a money thing sometimes. And my family, apart from mum, dad, uncles and stuff, sort of at my age, my generation and my family, none of us have really got married. So it's never really been a thing. I'm, I'm actually engaged now. Uh, I have been since... Congrats. Uh, thank you. Since since 2018, we're taking our time. Uh, and again, that's sometimes like a money thing. But now um, Steve, my other half, all of, his, all of his siblings are now fully married, including his sister who got married actually on saturday actually that was really nice to a girlfriend so there's the pressure now coming from the other family if you get what i mean we're like when's the marriage so yeah i know it's always been i know it, it gay people can get married but I, I i think you're less likely to get married if you're if you are gay maybe i'm wrong maybe that's just my way of looking at it that's interesting why do you think you're less likely to get married if you're gay probably societal expectations isn't it the same way i know i can adopt children and all of that sort of stuff but the expectation isn't really there on me. It was never really there on me The that, you know, you would you would find someone, you would settle down, you would have children, you'd get married. Those sort of heteronormative expectations aren't on me. So I didn't really feel any pressure to kind of do that until I got with Steve. And then after a few years, he was like the marriage thing came up time and time again. So, yeah, I think as I see it, most of my friends aren't married. And surely that is to do with that, yeah, heteronormative expectations on people, I think. And is that most of your gay friends or queer friends aren't married or are there some straight friends in there as well? So I've got straight friends as well, but um, yeah, most of my queer friends aren't married, if I'm honest, yeah. And it was almost kind of because they, they probably don't have the the mum in the background. It's usually a mum, isn't it? When you get married, you know, there's, <laughs> there's a lot less of that going on. I think that's that's why it's happened. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, I think my mum was the one who was like, what's uh, what's going on here? When are you getting married? Um, and now, since I've been divorced, she's just like, well, she's done it once. It's fine now. She can just do whatever she likes. <laughs> yeah, well, I think in some ways, do you think queer people are a bit luckier in that respect sometimes? Because they haven't got someone breathing down the net, forcing them sometimes into, into making a decision like, I must marry. I don't know, though, because I'm bisexual. Yeah. So... I think my family is more comfortable when I'm with someone of the opposite sex. Yeah. To them, that's like, oh, okay, you can get married and have babies and do all those things that we imagined you would do. Mm -hmm. So I think when I'm with someone of the opposite sex, they would pressure me to get married. But I don't know if they would. I mean, I've never introduced a woman I've been dating to any of my family. How would that go down if you did? Not very well with most people. <laughs> I think the out, I think the outskirts of the family would be like, sure, fine, face to face, and yeah. then probably like talk about it yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when they get home. But yeah, I don't know. I I think because I only came out after I got divorced. Yeah, which is the last few years, isn't it? Yeah. Well, God, it feels like so long ago now. But yeah, still less. Probably like seven years, six years, seven. I can't even remember anymore. But yeah. yeah, so obviously I knew before and I was, you know, I spoke to my ex about it when we were married. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I hadn't sort of outwardly said to the world I'm bisexual. So I think also it's quite a new thing for them and never something they've had to really see mm -hmm. because my long-term, more my two long-term relationships, my marriage and now the person I'm having a baby with are both men. So right. 
that makes them feel comfortable. <laughs> Are there any other queer people in your family? No. No. Okay, so you're kind of a trailblazer. And there's a lot of pressure, I think, falls on people when they're the kind of, oh, we have to learn and we're going to learn and how we interact with you. And a lot of stuff falls onto you, And yeah. as far as I've seen anyway. Well, my best friend is married to a woman, is a woman married to a woman. And I think, you know, a lot of my family have met her and met her partner and met her previous partners mm -hmm. and sort of been fine with that because it's slightly removed from mm -hmm. the family, I think. But I think a lot has fallen on my best friend as well to be like a trailblazer for yeah. like, we're okay. <laughs> we're not we're not gonna make you snog someone of the same sex if you don't want to. Make you gay. Like, yeah, yeah. Not absolutely. catching. <laughs> I'm I'm a normal human being as well as you know, being in love with another woman. So um yeah, I think she's had to take quite a toll as well, especially yeah, yeah. around you know, and I don't want to speak for her, but you know, her family as well. So yeah, it is, it is a lot of pressure. Do you feel that in your life and and also in the industry, you know, having to be the, I'm gay, but I'm okay. Yeah, that <laughs> was the, <laughs> yeah. Well, I've been in radio since I, since I left school. I, did, I, I was one of them lucky people who kind of like, as soon as they were out of school, sixth form was in some fairly decent gigs and it was the early noughties and I was always very conscious of being certainly on airwise on a lineup on a radio station being usually the only gay in the village and within that came a lot of pressure to kind of like to represent and go we're not all like the things that you think we are and for me personally that probably came within that a bit of trying a bit too hard to to fit in so yeah, I'm gay, but oh, I'm just like you guys, you know. And then, I, I, and then within that comes all of the you'll have heard of internalized homophobia, internalized queerphobia. Within a lot of that kind of came out within that. So yeah, there was always in in the industry in the, the beginning. I used to feel acutely like yeah, I was. Um, people were evaluating what gay people were like by how they liked me as a person. And I felt a bit of pressure from that, certainly. Although the idea that there's no queer people in the radio industry or, or the broadcasting industry is is not true, because um, obviously there are. Uh, and, and certainly nowadays, there's so many openly queer people on, on the radio. But in the early noughties, it was, it, yeah, it was certainly a bit of a point of difference. It was like, he's gay and he's a scouser. So there were two kind of like things that kept me a bit different from other people and I was really conscious of the fact that I had to kind of really do my best to represent both of them communities as best I could people pleasing a bit too much it's interesting isn't it were you ever advised not to talk about being gay or do you think you were pushed like to represent your queer identity I was largely left to it I think the only time I felt I was told I oh, don't talk about that was it was actually not that long ago. It was in about 2014 when I was, um, so I had a bit of a rocky period and then I kind of went right to the bottom of the pile again. Um, I had a, like a spell in rehab, I had a bit of a nervous breakdown and I came off the back of that and I was right at the bottom of the pile. And I remember a boss I had when I was doing a breakfast show in North Wales was, was like, well, don't be telling that, don't be telling the audience that you're gay. And I was like, why? And um, oh, we, we don't know how that would go down in, and he's talking about these little Welsh villages. And I was like, well, g you know, give a shit. Like that's, that's all for them to deal with. I'm okay with this. So yeah, there was there, but you know, a lot of the time, largely people just let me get on with what I wanted to do. I didn't feel any heavy pressure. And it just really sticks out in my mind when that guy said that, oh, don't be talking about that. And I remember thinking, right, well, that's going to make me talk about it twice as much then. Yeah. Cause then it's in your head. <laughs> You're yeah. like, oh, I always, when I present on, um, 
the BBC, I I feel like I always just try and sneak it in that I'm bisexual, just because I feel like there isn't maybe as much representation. And I'm also deaf, so I talk about that as well. Mm -hmm. But that's kind of more accepted at the moment, because then they're like, oh, we're discussing disability. Great. Yeah. Good for us. Yeah, but I feel like no one's ever said to me, don't mention it or do mention it. I was on a TV show actually once and they said, do mention it. We want you to say you're bisexual. Like that's one of the reasons we're getting you on. How did that feel? It was, I couldn't, I didn't mention it because it it felt so alien to shoehorn <laughs> it into the conversation yeah. that was yeah. happening. It would literally be like, you know, oh, and then I went to the supermarket and I'm bisexual. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, when and no one's ever told me not to or to say it on the BBC, but I always feel like I try and sneak it in somewhere. I so would. I probably have been a little bit like I went to the supermarket and I'm bisexual. <laughs> For me, it's those anti-wokeness guidelines that you are perceived to have at the BBC. Don't answer that. You don't have to say anything. Um, but because I, they would be in the back of my head, I would want to get it right up front all the time. Uh, also, I think that the rebel in me is like, oh, I want to say the thing that I... Don't yeah. want to say. It's like when you get the, for anyone who's not in radio, there's like certain words that you you know you're not meant to swear, and there's certain swear words that are worse than others, aren't there? Yeah. So when I got the list of what the worst ones were, um, and obviously we can swear on this podcast, so I can say the worst swear word you can say on the BBC is motherfucker. Is that the worst? Yeah, that's I always not thought it was in even... the top three, not even the C word. No. I always feel like the C word's next level. That's what I thought, but apparently the worst is motherfucker because of the connotations around it. Oh, I guess so. When you analyse motherfucker, I mean, it is it's it's quite, bad. quite an insult, isn't it? Yeah. It's obviously, as soon as I found that out, I was like <laughs> desperate to say it. <laughs> On a Sunday afternoon on Radio London, I would I would pay. I'd pay you to do it. <laughs> I didn't, thank gosh. Yeah. But it is in the back of your mind. So obviously we've talked about you in the industry. And what about you in relationships? When, you know, are you happy to talk about when you came out and when yeah. you started dating? I came out when I was 15. Remember the TV show Queer as Folk? Yeah. It was during the first series of the TV show Queer as Folk. I remember... So I, I, I'd started doing hospital radio, right? And I made a friend there who was the same age as me and we were, we got on really well. And it was back in the days where you'd ring each other on the house phone. So I'd have to ring his mum's house. He'd have to ring mine. I remember we were having a discussion one evening and I was like, I think I'm bisexual. And he was like, I think I am too. And I was like, wow. And I, but I was also a bit annoyed because I was like, well, that's, that's my thing. Why do you have to be bisexual as well? And that what for me that was a staging post to 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 full queerness. You know, I was well actually if you're bisexual, you are fully queer. But you know what I mean? To to the full binary, I'm a gay man. In reality, I probably am slightly bisexual, but I I, I identify as a gay man because I always have and I feel comfortable in, in that identity. So that went on for a bit and he would come to my house and stay over, like friends do, sleep over, and we'd all sleep in the same bed and mum and dad didn't know. And then um this went on for quite a while, during my GCSEs it was. There was one time I was revising with him. We were quite a good influence on each other. We we, we would revise together. We were, we, we were good kids. Uh, as one time we were lay on my bed the day before some exam. I can't remember what the exam was. And um, my mum was downstairs or I, don't, I'm not, I wasn't sure where she was, but as far as we were concerned, she wasn't on the same floor as us. And we, we would just lay on the bed. We weren't doing anything. He just was sort of had his head on me somewhere reading. And my mum just burst him through him. Graham, have you got the... 
and then we both got up and then she's like oh oh i'm just going out i'll see you in a bit and then he she left and he was like oh, i better go i'm like oh and he went and she come back later and yeah that's when mum came at me whilst i was revising with the what was that earlier on and i'm like oh nothing nothing just leave me alone what was it and she was very persistent she still is my mum she's very persistent and then yeah she was like are you gay now at this point i wasn't ready to give myself a label or anything but mum said it and she was insistent on an answer and i was kind of forced into a position really to give her the night before an exam as well and i was like yeah i am and then the period after that so it was 1998 this and the period after that i went to chris's chris's mum went on holiday and we were looking after the dogs they had a dog a dog and i just went and stayed at his for a few days because wasn't that mum and dad weren't supporting it's just that the their heads fell off they had a 15 year old boy in 1998 all they knew was aids mm. really all of that yeah i think they mourned the and this is a common thing with parents and and i think they're a bit more awkward talking about it now because it was a lot of pressure on me to take i i now see for mum and dad to effectively act a bit like old graham died and then i went back a week later and you know, i was still ringing them and everything i was just staying at my friend and things were things were all right actually chris was allowed to stay they paid for chris to come on holiday with us then i got chris into the sixth form i was in because it was quite a good school he used to go to quite a rough comp but he was like a bit of a swat at the comp and yeah do you know what they were really supportive after that i, I kind of beyond that point where they acted a bit like i died i almost feel like my time in uh, sixth form and the upper bits of school feels a little bit like the have you seen the tv show heartstopper yeah it felt a bit like that I felt like Charlie's the main character, the curly-haired kid. I felt a bit like him and Kit. It's Kit, isn't it? The other guy. It was a bit like Chris, my boyfriend, and we had a kind of idyllic sort of school relationship. There was looking back, there was bits where a bit of trauma, I guess, where people found out and would give us a bit of shit. But at this point, I was so I, I knew that what I was doing wasn't wrong, and I had enough support at home, and I felt secure enough to kind of push back against it. So, and you know, the school, to their credit. They were dealt with a bit of a difficult thing when I go and say, these guys are calling me a queer and pushing me on the stairs. We're, we're still during section 28. It's a strict Catholic school, um, St. Edward's College in West Derby in Liverpool, but they handled it really well. They were really good with me and Chris. So that was good. The coming out experience was good. So was that your first relationship? Yeah, Chris you was my first relationship. Yeah, yeah, we were together for five years until I was 19 or 20. Um, just through that period, it was as much as being in a relationship, uh, as much as it was being in a relationship, it was also a good way, a safe way to explore the world around us without too much going wrong. And it worked, you know, it worked until, um, yeah, until, until I went to, I deferred a year, I was working in radio and I went to uni in Manchester to do history and politics and Chris did management science or something. And the relationship lasted until that point. And then I was in Manchester and I was like, oh, but there's all this stuff and chris was a bit more swatty and i wanted my career and then we went our separate ways but it was it was i, I look back at it at a a, a a great introduction to intimacy with another man a great first relationship and also a good way to kind of explore sex and boundaries and kind of it was it was a good thing i'm still friends with them as well yeah and then I, I got straight off the back of that and went into another relationship and that lasted nine years that was more chaotic it, it's interesting you say at that age because i remember and, and you considering you were bisexual, because I remember considering I was gay, but then I knew I still liked all the genders. 
Mm-hmm. So I was always really confused by that. And I remember a friend of mine who is straight, and we were like hugging on the sofa watching TV. And I remember my dad then asking me if I was a lesbian mm-hmm. and saying no, because I was like, well, I'm not because I still like men. And I mean, non-binary people weren't as uh, uh, well, weren't allowed to be as open yeah. about themselves then. But, you know, and I remember it's just interesting you saying you thought you were bisexual first before gay because I sort of ignored the bisexual and kept leaping to gay and then leaping back to straight and being like, well, no, I can't be fully gay because <laughs> I still like a bit of penis sometimes. <laughs> Um, and, and it took me a long time of jumping back and forth to be like, oh, there is this thing in the middle that I'm allowed to be. It's in, it was invalidated, wasn't it, for a bit? Mum used to say, yeah. oh, you've got to be one or the other. Yeah. You'd be greedy. And I, I kind of, if it was now when I was coming out, I'd probably just say I was, actually, I'd say I was pansexual. Mm. But I feel like that's a kind of, if I was to go on my social media now and go, I'm pan everybody, it would just, for me, it would look like I was just attention seeking. But um, I, I, I'm I probably pansexual, but labels kind of fit, don't they? My identity is as a gay man. So yeah, if if only we had the array of options that are, that are available now to young people, or if I had them in the late 90s, there might have been a bit of a different outcome to a lot of stuff, I think. Yeah, I think so too. I think I definitely would have explored more at a younger age. I mean, that's not to mean I didn't explore because obviously mm-hmm. I did, but it was more like, oh, it's just me and my friend snogging because, you know, we're just like drunk, not yeah. like <laughs> maybe yeah. we're both <laughs> interested in exploring this. You know, it's just like, yeah, we're just like doing it because guys will see it and it'll be cute, but we weren't really. We were he loved snogging. it, really. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. So, so you had what sounds like this lovely first relationship. Beautiful, yeah, yeah. Um, and then you went into the slightly more chaotic, yeah, nine-year one. So, what happened at the end of that one? <sighs> right. So there was a lot of moving about. I was working in Leeds on what was called the Galaxy Network. It was a network of dance music stations, and I really loved being there. He moved in with me in Leeds really quickly. He was in Liverpool at first. It was a mad thing that you kind of think I would never do now at that speed, but it was like 100 miles an hour straight. Let's move in. And yeah, then we moved to London. And then in London, um, a few things happened. I probably developed a bit of a drugs problem. I did. That kind of bubbled over in the background and we grew more distant. Um, experiment a bit with, experiment a lot with um, being open. And there are a lot of life lessons from that. I'm not saying it's wrong because it's not. It's great to do that when there's trust. But the trust broke down. And then we moved. I ended up in not a great situation mentally. I was like, I need to go because a few things happened. And I was like, I need to move back up north to be near my family. And I moved up to Preston in Lancashire where I took a job doing a breakfast show on a radio station. And it was just really difficult because I'd moved from London to Preston and I felt really kind of like it was the bright lights and all of a sudden Preston, the people are lovely, but I don't know if you've ever driven into Preston town centre off the back of living in Vauxhall. It was a real, it was, a, it was, it was different. Yeah. And we just sort of drifted and I was really tired working on breakfast and stuff. And in the end, a lot of stuff that had happened whilst we were in London just bubbled to a head. And I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. The, the incident that ended the relationship was one where 
police ended up being called domestic incident kind of thing. And after that, we were like, no more. But we had to kind of live in the same house as each other. Whilst I was working super awful hours, my drugs problem was getting rapidly worse. So I've no doubt that I, I was difficult. He was difficult. And he then moved back to London and I, I remained stuck up north. So all my friends were in London and he'd moved back and was back in the group of friends that I liked, where I was kind of feeling isolated up north. And I went down this just mad path of, once we'd split, of just like casual sex with people, wanting to tick loads of stuff off and experimenting with meth and um, a drug called GBL and anything really like that. And yeah, that led me to get into another relationship almost straight off the back of it with someone who had a similar set of issues to me. Um, and we were both sort of like trauma bonding, sort of drug issue bonding. He had loads of issues going on and Darren was no longer talking to me. And my friends were kind of on Darren's side because they'd seen him more and you know what people are like and they split side. So it was really difficult that. And so for the best part of two years, I didn't get to speak to a lot of my friendship group and I ended up in a, in a just a downward spiral until I just couldn't, until my drugs problem got so bad, I was just using a drug to go to sleep, to continue through the day. And I ended up realizing that I was, I was like, I'm going to end up dead. So I put myself into a rehab thing. Not one of the fabulous ones where people go off to Antigua for two weeks, get a suntan. Now this was in North Manchester. It was organized by the NHS and I was on the bottom rung. I'd been doing good in work and stuff previous to that. And all of a sudden I was here with heroin addicts, people who had terrible issues who I found out I got on really well with as well, which was a real, real eye opener to me. And it kind of opened up a huge thing in my head that like, these people like me and I'm in this place and I'm not on drugs. So you must like me. And it was kind of a really, from it being really dark because when I arrived in that place, I attempted to take my own life and because I felt I was so low, but when I left, I felt like there was a path. Wasn't plain sailing after that. Two other relationships happened. Um, and then one morning I'm lying in bed with the, the guy I was seeing at the time on a Sunday morning. And we'd had a nice early night on the Saturday, which I was very proud of. I used to turn off my phone on a Saturday night and go, oh, you did it. Well done you. And I woke up, turned my phone on and um, my friend, Stephen, I had a few missed calls on my phone. He hadn't spoke to me since kind of the start of when Darren had moved back to London. And I was like, oh, why is he ringing me? And then I answered my phone at 8.45 in the morning in 2015. And um, Steve's like, hello, Graham, it's Steve. I'm like, yeah, why are you ringing me? Is everything okay? Yeah, it's about Darren. Are you are you with someone? Are you somewhere safe? I was like, yeah. He's like, he died yesterday afternoon at three o'clock. I was like, how? He's like, well, it, it was Darren's last night in London before he moved to Manchester with a friend of ours. And whatever's happened, he's gone to a, a party and um, he stopped breathing and anyway, he's dead. And I was just like, it was tortuous because I missed him anyway. And I'd started sort of, sort of texting again and everything, but to, to lose him in such a traumatic way, I really loved him. You know, obviously it was, you, you, you never feel love sometimes like you do when you're young, do you? Because you can't contextualize them feelings. So I'd, I'd lost him in that way. And then before I could even make proper peace with him, he died. It's still an open wound, that death, the, the bit that, makes it even more unusual is the person who rung me to say that Darren had died was a mutual friend of mine and Darren's Steve, who's now my partner that has been my fiance since 2018. Wow. So off the back of that, me and Steve, I guess trauma bonded a bit and some of our friends didn't approve of it. Uh, and we ended up in a relationship and we both knew we could help each other emotionally and where we were up to and got ourselves into a much better place. And now, yeah, me and Steve are going to get married next year. We plan to put a date in. 
so yeah, that kind of ties up some aspects of what gone on when you asked about that relationship. It was Darren always used to say to me, he was very funny. He was a charmer. He was very funny. And he used to say, if I die, I'm going to fucking haunt you. And he died. And I feel like he does haunt me <laughs> for good and for bad. So, um, yeah, that ties together a lot of things. And I've missed out relationships in there that really taught me things about in that period when I wasn't in communication with my regular friendship group that I'd known since I'd been at that period at uni in Manchester, I got into a couple of relationships, one person who had terrible problems himself and, you know, he would attack me, you know, beat me up on several occasions, stole from me. And then someone else who did something similar. And there was like a, a pattern of just like people abusing me. And I've, I've, I've gone through therapy since. And what they've said is, why did you stick around? And how did you keep yourself together? And I was like, I don't know. And they went, I think that you kind of conditioned yourself to believe that that was what you deserved. That's all you deserve. So you go back to similar sort of people and repeat the kind of, and it was rinse and repeat really until Steve. Wow. There's a lot in there. A lot to unpack, isn't there? Yeah. <laughs> Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Ding dong, it's the ad break. This podcast is sponsored by Penguin in the Room, an award-winning company that can manage your business's social media. They even manage our podcast, Instagram and Twitter. Just email info at penguinintheroom.com for a quote. Also, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can by buying merchandise from our website, www.thedivorcesocial.com. Ding dong. Oh my goodness. So there's so much to deal with. I think a lot of people will be able to relate, not necessarily to the exact circumstances, mm -hmm. but that idea of, you know, you're not in a good place at the end of a relationship and then you break up and you can spiral, you know, mm -hmm. of whether that's casual sex. I mean, I had a lot of casual sex and I had a lovely time, but, you know, whether it is doing things that, you know, you look back on and think, I wasn't in a good place doing that. I wasn't, I didn't necessarily want to do that or was in control of myself when I was doing that. And then also, you know, everything in your life can spiral. For you, it was drugs that got, you know, even worse and developed. Because you said you went to rehab. How did you decide 
when you were in that downward spiral, enough is enough? Or was it a, f- a friend who said it to you? Or do you remember that turning point moment of, I, I have to do something now? It became clear to me that if I continued on the reg doing what I was doing, even if it was every weekend, every other weekend, that at some point my luck would run out and I would die. I think it was just a sequence of different things that led me to that point because there were a number of just crazy... If you if you end up in that world, the sort of as, as gay men call it, the chemsex scene, if you end up in that, you can... It, it, a lot of things are normalised where you'd be like, I've been away for two days, that's perfectly fine, I'm going to go to the shops now. Not normal. But for someone who's in that scene, just going to pop to Tesco, you know, and then to a sex party or whatever. Now, my whole life wasn't like that, but it was in being around people who were unstable like that you bump into characters that are a kind of an example of what is going to happen to you if you don't sort yourself out. Yeah, there were a number of times when I drugged myself to sleep when, you know, I very nearly didn't wake up. So I would take what I was taking and then take a sleeping tablet on top of it, which is enough to knock you out where you'd never wake up. And I just became aware that, you know, running them odds continually, you're going to die. So I made that calculation myself and I wanted to be, I love what I did for a living. And I think you know, not, a lot, not a lot of people know the sequence of events that I've just told you there. And some people might be like, why did you go off the boil for quite a while? About 10 years. There's the answer because, you know, um, it's difficult to hold um, any semblance of a career together when the rest of your life is in complete chaos. The, the, the people that are meant to love you don't love you. And you're um, exposing yourself to danger quite regularly. and You're drained. So, I just wanted my life to be better than where it was going. The point at which I had to go in and do that was at the point at which the Conservatives just got into power in 2010. So by about 2012, the cuts were really starting to bite. And the first thing they made cuts to was them services, those services that you sort of self-refer to a drug service. First thing to go. Um, So I really fell down the cracks there and it took me about five months to be able to get into the treatment, literally harassing the people saying, I really need this. And in the end, I was like, this isn't going to happen. I remember I must have spent a month just in the house. And in the end, the person who um, was like a social worker character came and put a letter, handwritten letter through my door and said, Graham, call me on this number. I've got you a place we can get this fixed. And I'll never forget the relief that I got when that little note was pushed through my door because I thought they were going to just leave me to rot. I thought this is me written off aged whatever I was, 29, 28. So yeah, it was, it was a tough journey getting into there. And yeah, I just didn't want to die, you know? That was that was the main thing. And it was just such a shame that, such a shame in a lot of ways that Darren didn't make it as well. You know, I always feel, it always makes me feel quite sad that. It's one of those sort of strange life parallels of, you know, you were obviously in a really bad place and then you asked for help. And also the fact that you had to ask for help so relentlessly before mm-hmm. you got it must have taken a lot of stamina. But then you got help and now you're okay. Whereas this other person that you'd been in love with, who maybe, I don't know, but it sounds like wasn't in a similar downward spiral to you, then wasn't okay. It's one of those horribly awful, ironic life things. Yeah, yeah, totally. And you said that, Darren said he'd haunt you, and you, you think he does. It makes me laugh, though, when thinking about <laughs> it, because he fucking does. But how, how do you think he haunts you? Do you think he's a reminder to you? Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, there was a thing after after someone close to you dies, you look for, um, or something really unexpected like that happens, you, you start to look for answers everywhere. So I went to see several psychics i've heard this on your podcast before i was listening to one of your latest episodes someone was talking about going to see a psychic 
And you have to be careful with how much you take on board, I think, with what they say, because some, some mad people just say they're a psychic. But I, I, every time I went to see someone, he came up. And there was one woman in particular who described him and said he was in the corner of the room looking at me and it was all okay. And and I was like, how do you know? How did you know what he looked like? Proper, like, befuddled me. Because, like, how did you know what he looked like? So I think in some respects, he haunts me because you can never forget someone like that. And also, uh, for a period, I think it felt like he did literally haunt a few of us. Um, but that's that's only because I think we were so grief-stricken and susceptible to the concept of that. But, um, yeah, we'll, we'll never stop thinking about him or talk about him. You know, he does haunt my thoughts all the time. And not in always in a sad way. Like, when someone dies, you can just think of them as being, oh, they were saintly. And I, I think of him now, and I'm like... I, I, I think of him being funny, but he could also be an absolute sometimes, you know? You can get that with people, oh, he was lovely. And I'm like, no, I remember sometimes he was an absolute shitbag. Um, well, so was I. Um, so you can, it, it's it's complex, isn't it, how you remember someone after they've, they've gone after a while and there's been a lot of stuff has happened. But um, yeah, he does haunt me. He did get his wish. <laughs> well, obviously it's not the same, but my dad died and... I remember I was looking for lots of signs that he was still around after he first died and and yeah definitely had this like he was the best dad ever view and now I think like nearly seven years on or over seven years on I can be like no he was a bit of a shit sometimes he was an (laughs) annoying dad but he was also great and and I think for me it's interesting because life events come up and then I think of him more maybe because he's you know, my dad, but obviously I'm having a baby now. So I'm about to become a parent and he's not around. Do you think for you, you know, you're about to get married to someone you met through Darren? Yeah. Do you think he comes up more for you at those times? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 100%. I have. I've had to go through a lot of thinking about all of that. And so, I mean, I met Steve before Darren and then he was, but yeah, we were all in the kind of same, same group of people. Um, and I guess, yeah, I do. Uh, yeah, not a day goes by where I don't think about him really. Um, and I think about how lucky my journey's been in comparison to his as well. I always think, you know, you had you had a lot left in you. And I think that, yeah, when the when the wedding day comes, we will remember him. But I need to try and not allow that to be. It's managing that memory, isn't it, and doing it in a decent way. You know, I miss my nan. She died at the start of the year. I miss her terribly. I wanted her to see me get married, but. Um, she won't. So it's managing them things and not letting your your happy day become, you know, I, I don't think anyone would really want that. Yeah, my dad did actually die just before my wedding. So oh, wow. I put my wedding dress on and cried. Oh, no. So, yeah, I didn't manage it in a very good way. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, this thing of these big events coming up, I think. And also... It's hard going through a breakup anyway. You were in a difficult place at that time. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, you know, may say when they get divorced, a lot of people don't, but some people say it would be better if they were dead because I wouldn't be able to see them anymore, <laughs> whereas they're still in my life. Well, yeah. You know, I'm not saying that that's right thing to say, but, you know, when you're in the difficult bit of it. But what's it like having broken up with someone and then they died during sort of still that breakup period. It is the most complex of grief. It's difficult to describe the the grief that 
what is always weird to me is that moonpig.com every year sends me absolutely under round about the start of October. Because have you got have you sent Darren his card yet? Darren's card needs to be sent, and I, I get reminded of it every year. And social media is what kind of immortalizes people. So we stopped following each other on Facebook, as was customary at the time. If you remember, I'm unfollowing on Facebook, but all our friends and our mums and families were all still, but we didn't follow each other. So for me, it's always a bit like he used to come up. Who's like to follow, follow Darren? And, I'm like, oh. and this picture of him, I often go to his Facebook profile and people do this after someone's passed away, don't they? And look at it. And he's there two days before drinking a champagne with his friend, this smile. And um, yeah, I find that, um, that he haunts me there as well, if I'm honest with you. It, it's a really complex, bittersweet grief that. So my, my nan dying, I don't have any real trauma associated with that because the night before she died, I could tell she was fading. She was about to get put to bed. And mum said, she's tired here. Do you, want, do you want to speak to her? And I went, hello, Nana, are you okay? Nice to speak to you. Okay, well, you have a nice night's sleep. You sleep well, Nana. Good night. I love you. I love you. Great. Put to bed. It makes me feel warm inside. Falling out with someone, unfollowing them, feeling a load of anger, and then just about putting the pieces back together and then dead is quite hard for a person to kind of put into a sort of a narrative that doesn't, yeah, it doesn't traumatize you, you know? How do you deal with that? Because, you know, I broke up with my ex in quite an amicable way initially, mm. and then things weren't very amicable to, during the divorce. And then we didn't speak to each other. And then, you know, we've sent a few texts and like, I let him know when I was pregnant before I put it everywhere. Mm. And so this feels like quite a nice, sort of point of closure of like oh we can now we can have those texts and everything's yeah. fine but you obviously like you said didn't get to that final point so how have you or are you dealing with that or not <laughs> yeah well for a period probably not now i look back at where my behavior went around then i was like i'm fine and then demonstrated in fine style how unfine i was not at the time and um, by dipping back into a few of them old habits, but because the stabilizers were on, there was accountability. I had to turn up to work, all of that. It was difficult to fall completely off the wagon, but there were moments when people were like, shit, what is going on with him? Accountability, critical. And actually therapy in the end, because when me and Steve had a relationship, he was in London and I was in Liverpool working for Capital Radio up there in my home city. And um, I'd see him of a weekend. And that's very different to living with someone when he deals with you, when you've come home from work, you've done a live show every day. You're a bit drained after doing them things, especially where a lot lands on you, aren't you? And um, I'd just be in a bad mood, angry on my journey home. So what, what I began to see was that my, I'm not a violent person, but I need to make that clear. Just I, I was aggy and angry and just in a bad mood after work and easily irritable. And I was wondering, what, what why am I like this? So I started going to some therapy and it's, it's clear that them things that went on and his death was coming out of me in weird ways. Sometimes I'm one of them people that like, you know, someone could be shot in front of me and I'd be like, oh, I'd do what I could to help. And I wouldn't be happy to see it, but also it wouldn't, it wouldn't have bothered me. And then actually what happens to me personally is I, I think I process things quite slowly in the background. Three months later, oh, my behavior changes a bit. 12 months later, I'm just really fucked off all the time. And I don't know why, because have you ever heard of the idea of racket emotions in therapy? The idea that you've got, you, you have your regular emotion that you're used to having and you, you, your go-to 
or one that was kind of as a kid was kind of like displayed and, and valorized. So for me, it was anger. Men should be angry. So my, if I was feeling hurt or upset, I couldn't allow that to come to the surface. So you have your initial reaction, which is anger. And that's therapy pointed that out to me. So it's like, what's actually going on underneath? So yeah, therapy for two and a bit years until, um, you know, I, it always makes me laugh when someone says, yeah, yeah, I did therapy. I had six sessions and I'm like, right, did you? <laughs> <laughs> you had six Zoom chats, like, two years worth. And, you know, there's still more work to be done. It's an ongoing thing, I think. I'm only just at the stage now where I really particularly, uh, I'm, I'm really up for like having a conversation about it. I don't mind dipping into it and revisiting it now. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't tear me apart. I think that's a healthy thing as well of, I think when something first happens to you or when something first happens to me, I want to talk about it all the time and everyone gets sick of it because I'm yeah. kind of trying to process it by saying it out loud. Yeah. And then I don't talk about it for a really long time when I actually process it. And then I can come back to it sort of years later, like now, and then talk about it possibly with much more perspective and also mm. accountability of my part in the situation when it comes to a breakup and things. Um, but yeah, therapy, I'm a big fan of therapy. I've had a lot Same. of therapy and I can totally relate to what you said about anger. And in fact, therapists have said to me, usually it's more of a male trait because men are brought up to believe that they shouldn't cry. Yeah. Whereas women are normally brought up to believe they shouldn't be angry. Yeah. So we cry when we feel angry. So it's the opposite, but I don't for whatever reason. So my natural reaction is always anger. And it's normally that I want to cry, but I feel that I need to put the protection up. So I do anger instead. And it's still an ongoing thing, you know, in my relationship now, it's still an ongoing thing of, I have to remind myself, what are you actually angry about? Are you angry? Yeah. Or are you hurt and feeling vulnerable? That's it, yeah. And anger is like your go-to. You feel powerful when you're angry though. I'd, I'd say this, anger is a, it could be such a good, not good things, it's unhealthy, but like it can be such a, a, an empowering thing to lean on. I'm not a victim, I'm angry, I'm fucked off. And that feels so much more comfortable than actually accepting that you're really upset, doesn't it? Because then you feel vulnerable. So if things aren't great, sometimes anger can, I just found it helped me plow through stuff. But it only gets you so far, doesn't it? Yeah, I think anger can be useful, mm -hmm. like plowing through. You know, and nowadays I help to fight like um, disability discrimination and things like that. And so anger yeah. sort of a low level does help me in those situations of like, no, I'm not going to put up with this. But then, yeah, if, if it's covering something else, then that's when yeah. you need to do the work. Or if it's impacting your current relationships as well, that they're dealing with stuff that's not on them. This yeah. is from ages ago, other people's shit. And at that point, it kind of, for me, I didn't want to be annoyed at Steve for stuff that he hadn't even done. I thought that's not fair. It's like when you have a dream, this is normally said to be a woman thing, but I think it, it can happen with all of us. Or those people who vividly dream, I think, is... um you have a dream that your partner has done something and then you wake up and you're still annoyed with them for the thing yeah. they did in the dream. <laughs> and they're like, I didn't do it though. So can you just be nice to me? Um, but I think that's a really good point that you made about not being angry with your current partner and not letting things affect your current partner from the past. And I think a lot of people will be able to relate to that. And obviously your situation is slightly more involved because your partner knew your ex-partner. 
Yeah. How do you and how have you in your relationship left some of those things behind and tried to kind of marker out your new relationship and let that be what it is? We are in that place. Uh, there was a period where I thought we wouldn't be. Like When we got together, no one wanted us to be together. My dad was like, he lives where? And I was like, London? And he goes, oh, fucking hell. Well, no. And I was like, well, why are you getting involved? Didn't want it. And one of my best friends was like, he lives in Bristol. Um, and he's like, Bab, I think this is a terrible idea. I think that, you know, if you are going to commit to this, you're carrying a literal bin lorry full of shit behind you and you can have to go and delve into that shit. And that's quite the job. And he went, and you're not living together. It, it's going to be tough. I didn't want to hear any of it. So by doing literally what my friend Joe said, which was going through the shit, unfortunately, and sometimes it's inconvenient. It's good to do it in a structured way. We were on holiday in, um, we went to Sitges and I remember one evening, and it was actually cathartic for me and for him, there was a learning process about how hurt I felt when Darren kind of moved down back down to London and a lot, I had all my friends on side. And I sat on this, um, this is going to sound way more dramatic than it was, but it was like a, like a cliff edge. There was, don't worry, there's nothing mad about to happen, but we were sat there looking out to sea and I was crying and I was telling him, I was like, listen, I felt like this and I need you to know this. And he heard every word I said and he understood because he'd had experiences like that in the past. And that was just one example of going through the stuff, getting the initial thing out the way, which is always painful. And you have to go through it all because I don't know if you're anything like me, I don't forget anything. Everything's stored up there. doesn't matter how small it is, the slightest slight, I will remember unless I kind of readdress it in my head so the best way to do that i think is you're gonna have to face up to it all and go through it and get it off your chest and let them get it off their chest and maybe have a bit of an argument but then i find just being heard is cathartic when the person that you feel like you need to hear this once they've heard it and they've took it on board that's cathartic and if you can't find someone who's going to listen to you and and hear you then i don't think that you're with the right person and if you can do that outing process whilst you're in front of a nice view then mm -hmm. even better film so I, it i wouldn't wouldn't recommend a, a cliff edge yeah maybe not like we did maybe so it was be beautifully scenic but you know too many things can go wrong there maybe on the beach on the beach would be nice in the Flat day ground <laughs> and obviously now you're engaged and you're planning a wedding congrats how do you view marriage because obviously you haven't been married before but as you said you feel like you could have been divorced five times <laughs> yeah. how do you view marriage and the idea that marriage doesn't always last yeah i i'm i view, i view like we all change don't we like i'm a different person now to the person i discussed had all them issues on a cellular level we're always regenerating speak to trans people they say you know oh change is something that happens in all of us you know, so you have to accept that you're not the person that you once were. In terms of marriage, I always think it's the kind of thing that other people do and I don't. And the idea of the formalities of it, like the parents doing speeches, well, let me tell you, <laughs> as queer people, sometimes we're allowed to reinvent the, the way these things work. Yeah. And I've, I've just seen a family marriage work the other day, you know, the, the family being involved. And I know there's formalities and things that are expected. And for me, I'm always like, I, I'm, I'm almost more, more comfortable as a spectator in that kind of thing than it all being about me. So um, marriage is a, is a thing that, and I also expect, you know, by the time we're 50, maybe we'll hate each other. I hope not. 
But I think that the only way we can not end up feeling like that is to continually work on things and to take them learnings that I've taken from therapy and getting the things out there and going through it all. Keep doing that and also keep having sex, I think, like is, is a critical thing because, you know, it doesn't matter how much Steve annoys me, as long as we're having sex, it's somehow magically all it's all forgiven. This <laughs> is somehow, and I think if you can combine them things together and have open conversations about what you want across everything, why would you want to end the marriage? I'm thoroughly aware that was it like fifty percent of marriages don't work. Um, but I feel like I'm ready at this stage now, forty, to be in a relationship that has sort of foundations that sort of like you know, if we have a fallout, we can't just go oh, fuck you, walk out and and stay wherever it's like we kind of put together somehow and i feel like we've gone through enough stuff that this won't be the hardest thing that we've done i hope anyway so i think that sounds a very healthy way to approach marriage coming from a divorce lady who hears about divorces all the time <laughs> so i hope you won't be back on the podcast to talk about divorce fingers crossed but also i do like talking to you so if that does happen you're very welcome <laughs> Um, how has the divorce social experience been for you? Incredible. It's been cathartic. It's been like those therapy sessions I talked about. It's been a bit like them. The same wow. setup on Zoom, you know, a lot of similarities. I'll bill you for £120. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, I wasn't paying £120 for therapy sessions. I know, but some are so expensive. I wasn't paying that either. But Not in Liverpool. Okay. They were like half the price. Yeah, fingers crossed they don't come back on. Uh, with with an awful divorce story, but absolutely open to coming back on. <laughs> Thank you. Where can everyone find you and your podcast and follow you on social media if they want to? Sure. Um, so I host, produce, make the, the full everything, write the theme tune, sing the theme tune, Outcast UK it's called, which is an LGBTQ plus podcast, bit of a progressive slant on it. It's more inclusive than just gay men. LGBTQ plus is a very broad spectrum of stuff and our interests aren't just the traditional gay stuff it's conversations generally around stuff that's happened and happening in the news so it's a bit more timely uh yeah get that wherever you get your podcasts outcast uk if you want to follow me uh, i'm mr graham smith on uh, instagram and tiktok if you want to give me a follow on there uh, and yeah outcast uk wherever you get your podcasts thank you very much thank you 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Oh, hi. Thank you for listening to The Divorce Social with me, Samantha Baines. Please leave us a review. Please, please. Um, It would be super nice. They're lovely to read. They keep me cheery and happy and keep me going. Uh, But also it affects our listing in the podcast charts, uh, which are very important because that's how more people find the podcast. And I'd love to help more people get through those really tough heartbreak and divorce times. And they're more likely to find us if we're higher up on the charts. So if you'd like to leave a review, I'd love you forever. You can leave them on iTunes is the big one or most podcast platforms do them as well. I'll take all the reviews you've got to give. You can also uh, get in contact on Twitter and Instagram at DivorcePod and at Samantha Baines. We have a website, thedivorcesocial.com and we have a Patreon account, which means that you can support the podcast for as little as £2 a month and it helps me with all the admin costs. It also means you have access to our 90 style divorce and heartbreak chat room and there's lots of exclusives on there, little bits of audio that you don't get in the main podcast and some giveaways as well. So I'd love to see you over on Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash Samantha Baines and please leave a review. Did I say that already? Please leave a review. Love you forever.